Did you navigate all the wires and the instruments, you're okay? Phil's shaking his head, yes. And that's the last thing that you want, right, is you're walking up and just so. But it would emphasize how we are weak and fallen, and Jesus is good, I guess. We're going to be back in Isaiah chapter 49, uh, this week, 49, 42, last week, uh, looking again at the servant songs of Jesus, trying to take a moment out of our busy schedules and lives to behold the unique glory of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at this second of the four servant songs this week. Um, And as we do so, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, but we're also going to be looking into the end of chapter 48 to set the stage. Um, Because when you get to the end of Isaiah chapter 48, there is this tension. And so let me just say this too by kind of way of uh, uh, housekeeping here. I know a lot of you guys are really used to the outline format and Phil's very structured in his outlines. We're not going to be doing that today. Uh, We're just going to be working through the text uh, in the way that it comes to us and gleaning information and and truths as we go through it. Um, You might be able to, if any of you guys are really good at outlining, you might be able to throw together an outline and then send it to me and we can then use it retroactively. But uh, before we do that, I'm going to pray briefly uh, that God would be with us as we hear from the word this morning. Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is ours, that you have given your son for us. Lord, that we might know you, that he has come to rescue sinners. Lord, he has come to uphold your faithfulness, to demonstrate your faithfulness to your people. Lord, that your promised blessing of salvation would indeed come. So Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we seek to behold this unique glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Before we jump into Isaiah, there are a couple of scriptural things that we want to keep kind of at the front of our mind. A couple of, uh, of main topics, main themes, main things that, that we should know before we jump into this text. So if you have your Bibles with me this morning, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at this time in the history of the world and as God is dealing with mankind when God reaches out to a man named Abram. Later on, he's called Abraham. Many of you are familiar with his story. But man, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, the first 11 chapters of Genesis just show what a train wreck mankind is at this point. I mean, by the time you get here, there are just these massive uh, falls into sin where mankind has just made a mess of all of the good gifts that God has given them. And though we don't have time to do that, at the end of chapter 11, there is this sort of wane about man. And so then God reaches down and he begins to speak to this man, Abraham. God is going to do something now through Abraham. And so I'm going to pick up reading here in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now Abraham lives in the land uh, that is a pagan land. Abraham is presumably not here a worshiper of the Lord. Abraham is not somebody who, because of his own righteousness, God would say, okay, there's a guy I can work with. God is calling Abraham and saying, in the midst of this sinful world, in the midst of all that we see here, all of this mess, God is going to do something through this one Abraham. So he calls Abraham to leave where he is, and then he says this in verse two. I will make you a great nation, which is to say, Abraham, there is gonna be many, many descendants who come from you. I'm going to make you a great nation, God continues, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. 
And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then this, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so here is God reaching out to this man, Abraham. He's calling Abraham, and he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to do something with you. The world right now is a wreck. It's a mess. Sin is everywhere and ruining things. But Abraham, I'm going to do something. I'm calling you, and through you, I'm going to give you a ton of descendants. I'm going to make you a great nation. And then through you, through your descendants, or through your seed, as we're going to hear about later, I am also going to bless all of the nations of the earth. So that now the blessing of all of mankind is tied up in this man Abraham and in his descendants, in his seed. And so God then continues to work through Abraham. Abraham is going to have a son named Isaac. Isaac is called the son of promise. So God promises Abraham, hey, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation, man. You're going to have lots and lots of descendants. There's a problem, though. Abraham's wife, Sarah, her womb has been closed up. She's barren. She cannot have children. And not only that, but now she's just really old. So she couldn't have kids when she was in the prime of childbearing age. It never happened. And now she's past that point. And God says to Abraham, listen, you guys are going to have a lot of kids. And so then more sin involved. Uh, Abraham and his wife, they're thinking. His wife says, listen, I can't have kids. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you my handmaid. And she can bear a child for us. And then we can kind of help God out with his promise to us. You guys ever try to do that? You ever just try to help God out? Like, I, I know that your word says this and I should trust you, but man, I just don't see it happening. So let me help you here. Let me speed things along, God. You're not really working on my timeline here, so I'm gonna help you out. Well, there's a name for that in the Bible. It's called sin, when we don't trust God. When we try to do things our way and not God's way, it doesn't work out. And just read through the book of Genesis. I mean, the mess that comes out of this. You could imagine, right? Here's a family, a married couple, Okay, you're going to have kids. Okay, this isn't working. So here's, here's my servant. Just have kids with her. And now there's a child from the servant. And there's this weird family dynamic. And it's a mess. But then, then God says, okay, you guys have made a mess of this. But I'm faithful to my promise. I told you that I was going to make you a great nation. And that Abraham, you and your wife Sarah were going to have a child. And so here comes Isaac. So there's this miraculous birth that takes place. God opens up her womb and she bears Isaac. And Isaac is now the child of promise. Fast forward now to Genesis chapter 22. God had told Abraham, listen, you guys tried to subvert my plan. You guys tried to impose your will in my plan. And you had a, a child with your handmaid. And uh, his name was Ishmael. And, and that's just not going to work. And so here's Isaac. And he's the child of promise. And in Genesis chapter 22, God asks Abraham to do something. And if you're a parent in this room and you've ever read this story, this is unthinkable what God would ask Abraham to do. God says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, the son of promise, and I want you to take him up on a mountain, and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so Abraham, to his credit at this point, is like, man, okay, I've tried to do it a different way than what God said, and that was a train wreck. That doesn't work. And so Abraham, in an absolute act of faith, says, okay, me and the boy, we're going up the mountain. And the story is so gripping at one point, there's, there's this, it shows Abraham and Isaac and they're making their way up the mountain and Isaac looks at his dad and he says, dad, we've got the wood for the offering, for the fire and stuff, but man, where's the lamb? And Abraham knows full well who's going to be sacrificed. But could you imagine at that moment, dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's silence speaks volumes, doesn't it? They make their way up the mountain. They put together the altar, the wood's there, 
And there comes this moment where Isaac is ready to, or Abraham is ready to plunge the knife into Isaac. I mean, he's going to do it. He's going to come down and he's going to kill his kid because Abraham knows that God has promised this is the promised seed. And so Abraham just figures, listen, if God's going to have me kill him, then God must mean to raise him from the dead. And so at that moment where the momentum starts to go down and he's ready to plunge the knife into his son, the voice of God rings out and says, Abraham, stop. I see that you've trusted me. And so then he looks over and there's a ram caught in the thicket and there's the sacrifice, the substitute. And... But notice this. After that, in verse 15 and following in, in Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. Now here's that language from Genesis 12. I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed or your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now we bring that up because that language is going to be very important when we get to the book of Isaiah. When God says here to Abraham as he's reconfirming to Abraham his promise that we saw in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you many descendants, so many it's going to be like the sand of the seashore. And in you and in these descendants, I will bless the world. Now, this is the first thing we want to keep in mind. It's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham. And I don't know if you noticed this in Genesis chapter 12, but this is all about what God would do. God said, Abraham, I will do this. This is God's unilateral promise to Abraham to bless him to bless his descendants and to bless the world through them. And so we have that vein, that God has promised to do this thing, to promise to bless Abraham and his seed and the world through them. Then if we look now ahead in the New Testament to Romans chapter 3, we're looking into the New Testament to summarize something that's in the Old Testament. So Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, as Paul is talking now about the gospel, he makes this comment. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And then he says this, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So Paul's saying, listen, the righteousness of God has now been made visible apart from the law. That is to say, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see God's righteousness in his son. But then he says this, but it was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. That means that the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, but specifically here, think now of the law, God's instruction to his people. God's instruction to his people was a witness. It testified to the fact that God is righteous. Now, one of the ways and one of the primary ways that God's righteousness was witnessed to in the law was this. God's righteousness is shown to be of such a nature that unbelief and sin necessitate, they warrant, they demand curses and not blessings. God has shown this to be true. If you want to go back in the Old Testament and do a little reading, Deuteronomy 28 through 30, you'll see this idea that unfaithfulness brings the curses of the covenant, while faithfulness, belief, and trust in God brings blessing. Now, here are these two things that we're upholding. God's promise to Abraham to bless him, his seed, and the world through them, 
And then God's revealed righteousness in the law, which says, hey, listen, unbelieving sinful people get curses and not blessing. And that's where we want to pick up the story now back in Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 48 as we lead into chapter 49. Now, all of this, all of what we're hearing is going to help us get our mind around this unique glory of the servant of the Lord. This unique glory of Jesus, because if we can't feel the weight of the tension at the end of 48, we're never going to see that unique glory of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your well-being, your peace, your shalom would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Now, God is addressing now Judah. He's addressing his people now And he's addressing them in their captivity. Because of their sin and unbelief, they've been exiled into Babylon. And he writes to them now, addressing that situation that they're going to find themselves in. But he says to them, in verse 18, If you had only paid attention to my commandments. God said, listen, I I instructed you in the way that you should go. I instructed you in the way, and the reason I instructed you was it was for your well-being and for your good. And I was reading through this and I thought, oh man, a parent gets that. Have you ever been there? You've got your child, you've instructed them, and why do you instruct your children? For their good? Because you love them and you want them to live a full life and a prosperous life and you want what's good for them? And there you are again, you find yourself back, whatever room it may be that you discipline your children in, and you're looking at this child who you've instructed and you've loved and you've wanted to help shepherd them right on the right way. And you look at him and you just say, man, if you would have only listened to me, we wouldn't be here right now. And you're, you're beside yourself, right? You're like, I've told you over and over again what's good for you. I've instructed you and here we are again. If you would have only paid attention. And this is how God addresses his people right here. If you would have only paid attention to my commandments, we wouldn't be here. And then notice what he says. I would lead you in the way that you should go. Your well-being. This is oftentimes translated peace. It's this Hebrew word, shalom. And it's a word that's hard to capture. It's this idea of fullness of life. Life that is lived kind of completely in the blessing of God. So that shalom is what you long for. This peace, this well-being is what you long for. And notice the imagery that's being used Your well-being would have been like a river. Now, before I went into ministry, I used to work for this environmental engineering company. And one of the things that we would do is we would go out and I would survey river bars, gravel bars. Uh, Every summer, the, the construction companies would come in and they would excavate the gravel from the gravel bar and then this was used for all sorts of aggregate products like concrete and other things and and we would go through and we would survey to make sure that on the high water flow the gravel would come back and that the flow of the river wasn't getting messed up and so on and so forth but what's interesting is that if you stood there at the river and you were to watch that river have you ever dropped a leaf in a river or a boat or something like that and it goes down and the next thing you know it's out of sight 
That's because that river is constantly moving. That water is constantly moving. Now, wherever you may be standing, there's going to be an end to the river that you can see on both sides. You might be able to see one tributary or something that comes down, but all you know is that that water is continuously moving so that what you have before you is this constantly replenished source of water. And that's what God says. If you would have just listened to me, your well-being, this fullness of life would have been like a river. It would have been a constantly replenished source of life. And so you can understand why God is like, man, why didn't you just listen? Moving on, verse 19. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Now we're hearing that same language from Genesis 22 when God says to Abraham after his faithfulness to bring Isaac up the mountain, I'm going to do this for you. But here's the problem. Now God is addressing Israel saying, hey, if you would have listened, if you would have trusted me, this is what I would have done for you. So we have this conflict now. And we can see this, like that, that just and righteous nature of God that demands curses and not blessing on sin and unbelief is now coming into conflict with God's promise to Abraham. And so then what we see in verses 20 and 21 is God just reminding his people of his faithfulness through this declaration that he will indeed lead them out of exile, take them out of Babylon. So let's listen to those verses. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. God will deliver his people out of this Babylonian captivity. Seventy years they're going to spend there, but then God will bring them back into their land. But notice what's missing in this. There's not one mention of Israel's righteousness, that they have warranted this or done this. There's not one mention that, okay, maybe they're getting it back together so that then these blessings can be rightfully received for them. As a matter of fact, chapter 48 ends with a statement that tells us, oh no, that's not going to be the case. Because when God brings them back into the land, the same problem is going to remain. The heart. The heart issue. It's not a matter of, oh, you're in captivity, you need a change of circumstance. The end here is going to declare to us powerfully, you need a change of heart. Listen to what God says. I mean, if we just ended on 21, this would be this glorious picture. Hey, deliverance. Verse 22, there is no peace for the wicked. In other words, you want this shalom the wickedness has to be dealt with. And that's the repeated problem that we face over and over and over again. There is nobody, nobody who has come forth from Adam onward, nobody who has not been inherently wicked, nobody who in and of themselves had their life and their heart pointed towards God. That's the clear biblical picture is that we're all pointed away from him. We all deal with this wickedness. And so we're left at the end of Isaiah 48 just going, this is a little bit heartbreaking, isn't it? Here's God's promise that he wants to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham. Through Abraham's seed, he wants to bless the world. And here's the problem, though. They are living so unrighteously, so full of unbelief, that their life demands God's curse. And so we're left here just going, this is terrible. If only, if only there was a different Israel who we could put our hope in. 
If only this wasn't the people and the servant that God had chosen. If only there was hope in God's servant Israel. Like God, really, these people, you've tied up the hope of the world here? Now let me just say this. Israel's not any worse than the rest of mankind. Not by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, you could probably make the argument that they're better. That that even in the external religious observations of God's law in a way that their heart was not at all captured by him, even in that, that society is better off because there is some resemblance of what God would have us to do. So the rest of the world isn't any better. But at this point, we're just left like, man, the hope of the world is tied up here. And you're just left longing, man, isn't there something better? Is there, is there an Israel that could do better? What's going on here? Enter the servant of Isaiah 49. Now what's amazing is Isaiah 48 is talking about the failure of God's people Israel. And in Isaiah 49, we hear the voice of this servant of the Lord. And this is how he begins. Remember, right on the heels of Israel's failure, this is what he proclaims. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention to me, you people from afar. Why is he addressing those outside of Israel? Well, the simple answer is what we've seen. The salvation of the world is tied up in the faithfulness of God's servant Israel. Same phrase is used as he calls out to the islands, pay attention, pay attention to me. Remember what God said to his people? If you would have only paid attention to my commandments. And so now here is the servant. And, and, and this, this phrase is tying together these two texts so that we understand that 49 is just not something new. But 49 is the answer to the problem that we see in 48. Pay attention, islands. Pay attention to me. And then he says this, for the Lord has called me from the womb. And then as we go on into the next verse and we see that he has a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, these phrases are telling us that this is a prophet. That calling from the womb is the same language that's going to be used of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah was called from the womb to be a prophet of the Lord. The Apostle Paul will later on say that he was set aside as well from before his birth to be used as an apostle and a spokesman for the Lord. And so this sets out this servant as a prophet of the Lord, but it also looks at something else. This idea of being set apart from the womb, it looks back. It looks back to the very beginning of God's promise to Abraham and to his seed and to the world through them that there was going to be a son born. And remember what happened there? There was the absolute impossibility of this woman to give birth to a child. Her womb was too old. She had never been able to bear a child. And so there was this miraculous birth to bring about what God had promised. And then, of course, this looks forward to this own servant. Because this servant, likewise, there was no way he should have been born. The servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, comes forth from Mary who of course has never been with a man. She's a virgin. And yet there is this miraculous birth. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing that story of the birth of Israel now paralleled by the birth of this servant, our Lord Jesus. Verse two continues. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Now we see two things in this text. We see the fact that this prophet, this one who speaks on behalf of the Lord, will be effective. Look at the imagery. From his mouth, which is where a prophet makes his living, right? From the mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. 
It will bring about the purposes for which it's used. It's sharp and it's effective. So that this prophet, when this prophet speaks, he will also empower those who hear to act accordingly. This prophet will not simply say, repent, you need to change. This prophet somehow will bring about that change in those people. He has a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. He is a select arrow, polished. I gotta throw this in. I couldn't help but think about this. You guys, are, when I was a kid, my favorite movie growing up was the cartoon Robin Hood. I'm, I'm tempted right now to break into the jingle that you hear in the beginning, but I'm gonna spare you all from that. There's this scene where Robin... The fox is dressed up as a stork because there's an archery competition and, and Robin knows that if he shows his true identity that, he's just, that they're going to have him. Like he's going off. And there's a lot of similarities, right, of our Lord Jesus in that sense. That, he was just hated. Like they didn't like him. But here's Robin Hood and it gets down to the final two. Now the winner of the competition gets a kiss from Maid Marian and who doesn't want to kiss Maid Marian? I think she's a fox too. Like I think in the movie. So anyway, so the sheriff of Nottingham now has his little minions inside of the targets, and he's letting these arrows go, and he's just not a good shot. So these guys are getting a workout. They're running in the little target, right, jumping up so that he can hit the bullseye. So this happens. It's clearly rigged. It's a mess. Now, here comes Robin Hood, the fox in the stork costume. He's on these stilted legs, and he's kind of wobbling around, and he draws back his arrow. And as soon as he starts to let go, one of the little minions of the sheriff, poof, just hits his hand. And all of a sudden... Here goes that arrow up in the sky. Now Robin's in a predicament right now. One, the sheriff has already got this bogus bullseye, but there it is, the arrow right in the middle of the target. So the only way that Robin can do this is if he can shoot so straight, if he can be so effective with the tool that he has that he can actually split the sheriff's arrow. Well, that arrow is on nowhere near the trajectory needed to hit the arrow. So Robin just casually, it's like no big deal, he just grabs another arrow, he shoots up at the arrow in the sky, hits the back fin of that arrow, redirects the new arrow, and splits the sheriff's arrow in the middle, winning the competition. Pretty amazing. Now it's a cartoon, granted, and I don't know that this could happen, but that's the imagery of the arrow. It's a select arrow, and it will bring about the purpose for which it was called. And so we see here that this servant... This prophet of the Lord is not only going to proclaim what they should do, but he will actually affect it in those people. That he will cause them, he will empower them to do what he commands them to do. It's an amazing picture. It's effective. This prophet is effective, but notice also that he's hidden. He's concealed. It's not clear how this is going to work. In many ways, it's just a mystery. And think about this. Wasn't this true of the disciples in the life of Jesus? Jesus is like, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to die. And they're like, yeah, not so much. Nope, that's not going to work for us. That's not the kingdom we're expecting. It's not. And Jesus came into his own and his own people rejected him. And so the manner in which he's going to be effective is very much concealed through his life and his ministry. We're going to see something of this concealed nature in verses three and four. Verse three, he said to me, the Lord said to his servant, you are my servant Israel. Now notice that right there. See that identification? That's absolutely critical. Here's this one who has now come forth from Israel, right? From the tribe of Judah, born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those under the law. But God now looks at this one, this individual, and he says, okay, you are my servant Israel. The natural seed of Abraham, his descendants, that servant Israel has failed everywhere. 
But God sees this one who now comes forth from Israel and he declares to him, you are my servant Israel. In other words, now all of my promised blessings are coming to be tied up in this one. That he now commands the fate of Abraham and his seed and all the world and the salvation and the blessedness that I want to bring. God says, you are my servant Israel. And I was thinking about that. Is it like, okay, so God, you can just sort of start over when you want? That's not the imagery used. As a matter of fact, one of the images used is that there will be a sprout that springs forth from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being the father of David, now representative of Israel. And think about that imagery. Ever seen a tree cut down, right? And you're left with a stump. And so now laying beside that stump is that old tree trunk. It's cut down. It was what had grown forth from the tree. But there are certain kinds of trees. And we're from, uh, you know, the north coast of California. And so there's this great big giant tree out there. It's called the redwood. If you cut down a redwood tree and then there is the trunk laying there, you know what that stump will eventually do? It'll sprout forth a new shoot. And that shoot will grow into its own tree. And so then what do you have? You have this trunk, this fallen tree that's laying there, and you have another tree growing next to it. And in many ways, it's exactly the same tree. It's got its nutrients from that root and that stump and that system, just like the other one did. But in many ways, it's absolutely different because that trunk laying on the ground is not the same one that stands in the air. Now, I have no idea, but like, do trees have DNA? I don't know how all that works, but it's the same stuff there. And that's the imagery used of Jesus. He's new Israel in that sense. And, and the hope now of God's salvation is tied up in this one servant. And notice this. Here's that concealed nature again, verse 4. Well, let me just back up to verse 3. He said, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. In whom I will show my glory. Now, verse 4. But I said, now this is the servant's proclamation. I have toiled in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. What do we see here? Just think about the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. All that he does, and from any onlooker looking at his life, man, you would just go like, he's toiling in vain. Here is a guy who comes, the king, the long-awaited Messiah, and he's got this ragtag bunch of 12 guys that are following him, one of whom has been a traitor the whole time in their midst. Here he's got 12 guys. Now, sure, Jesus would grow a crowd, wouldn't he? You see 5,000-plus people flocking to him until he says things like, hey, I'm the bread of life. And if you want eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it's just like pfft, dust flying, dust settles, and there you have the 12 again. Like, like you look at his life, and, and you would go, man, this guy's just toiling in vain, spending his strength for nothing, to the point that the, fulfill, the, the final part of his earthly ministry, the climax of his earthly ministry, not the final part, because we're going to have a much more glorious part than this, but the, the climax of his earthly ministry is that he finds himself nailed to a cross. He finds himself for his faithfulness to God, nailed to a cross. I mean, here is the king who came. And he's got, here's the king, and he's on the cross. So what's going on here? And any Israelite, any Jew would have known. The law said, man, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And it had to happen that way. God's righteousness, remember, is such that unbelief and sin warrants curses and not blessing. And yet God had promised and so here was his people Israel and all the promises that God had made for the world were tied up in this people Israel and they'd continued over and over and over again to fail as all mankind does. 
And then God says, you are my servant Israel, to this one, to this servant. And not only does this servant live the righteous life that none of us could live, live that life of faithful obedience and trust in God that is demanded by God's righteousness, but that no one, no one can do on their own. Not only does he live that perfect life, but he also, as he takes on that identity, as he is Israel and the servant of God, he must bear the curses that are due the sinful life of man. And so he does. He hangs on the tree. And, and just so you don't think that this servant's comment is like, oh man, Jesus just thought he was spinning his wheels for nothing. Look at the end of verse four. Well, let me just read verse four so we can hear it in context. But I have said... This is the servant, I've toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You remember his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here I am, I'm living for you, I'm, I'm following you, and I've toiled in vain, man. I'm just, but then notice this, yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Jesus knew the end game. He knew it had to be this way. He knew that he had to fully embrace that identity as God's people, God's servant. He had to fully embrace that identity as those who had failed over and over again. And if that blessing was going to be poured out, he must bear the curses on their behalf. And so what do we see here? We see in this servant... We see him taking that identity as God's chosen servant, as God's new Israel, and we see, as it were, the rescue of the Abrahamic covenant and God's promise to Abraham. It's rescued. We see the rectifying of this conundrum between God's law, God's revealed righteousness, and that promise that God is going to bless people. This servant rectifies that problem. No more problem. I've died for the curses, and I've lived the righteousness that's needed. And then we see the restored promise of salvation to all peoples. And then verses 5, 6, and 7 serve just as this, like, this magnifying of the glory of this servant. Listen to the words that we read now in Isaiah 49, 5 and following. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. To bring Jacob back to him. So that Israel might be gathered to him. And Let, let me just put my finger there and pause for a minute. This probably doesn't have the weightiness that it should for us. But this is God who has loved Israel. Pick up your Bible at some point and turn back to Ezekiel chapter 16. And, and just see the sort of love that God has for them as, as he finds, and Israel is depicted as this baby who has just been chucked out off on the side, left for dead. And God comes to this person and, and, and cleans this child and raises this child up. And then when this child is grown into maturity, God says, I am going to take you as my bride. You are going to be that close to me. And so there's this deep, intense love. And we see sort of that, the parental care in the beginning of that illustration and then the, the marriage love and so just stop for a minute and think about that think about the love that you have for your spouse or the love as a parent you have for your child or as a child that your parents have showed to you and then think about this the pain when a spouse leaves the pain when a child is abandoned by their parent the heartbreak that that causes and so when we read that this servant has been raised up to bring Jacob back to God, this is a monumentally glorious thing. This is the restoration of love. This is taking all of that hurt and all of that pain 
and saying, I'm going to make it right. You know, people that are hurting like this, people who have had adultery committed against them or have lost a loved one, and in many ways, yes, they're longing for that relationship that they had, but that's not what they're ultimately longing for. They're longing for the cessation of that pain. They're longing for peace. They, they know I can never go back to that relationship because of what's happened or whatever it may be, but what they're longing for is to be made whole again, and that's what God is saying here. I'm gonna bring them back to me. And, and you get the best of both worlds here. You get the restored relationship and you get the heart being put back together. Four, at the end of verse five, I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. And then verse six, I mean, if that was it, if it was the restoration of Israel alone, that would be enough for us all to fall down and say, glory, hallelujah, what kind of a God would do this? But then he says in verse six, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to reserve, restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Here is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that through God's servant, through the seed and descendant of Abraham, Israel, blessing, salvation would come to the ends of the earth. But notice here, God's just like, man, listen, it's too small a thing. Who this servant is, this Christ that we worship and serve, this one is so glorious, God says, listen, it's not enough that you would do this amazing work of raising up my people Israel, of bringing them back to me, of restoring that love, that unique love, but you are so infinitely valuable and glorious that you need to be the one who demonstrates and spreads my glory throughout the world by bringing salvation to all people. This is a glorious Christ that we serve. Verse seven, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Now listen to the way that this servant is described, to the despised one. Some of you are sitting out here right now and you feel despised. There are people in your life who despise you. Some of you may be sitting out here and there are people in your life who despise you right now because you're a Christian. Because you had the audacity to try to tell them this good news because you had the audacity to desire that their well-being would be like a river ever replenished, and so you're feeling despised. And let me just say to you, so too was the Lord Jesus. And the servant isn't greater than his master, and Jesus said, listen, as a matter of fact, because when you're feeling despised, what's going on is you're becoming like me. I'm making you like me, and that's your greatest good. So Jesus says that when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you should rejoice. To the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, not the nations, the nation. He came to his own and they did not receive him. Could you imagine your family's in a predicament? I mean, they've all been taken away, right? And they're in this dire situation where now your family is being tortured and tormented or whatever else may be going on. And the only way that you can get them out is if you go and take your, their place. You go and die for them. You render the ultimate sacrifice of love and you put yourself in their place so that you can take the punishment that they are receiving so that they can go free. And the thanks you get for it is, I abhor you. I hate you. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. 
And yet remember, in that, what seems like spending his strength for nothing and toiling in vain, what the world would cry out and say, foolish, God has said, that is my wisdom to bring about salvation. Where the world would look at him and say, you are weak, and they would mock him. Why don't you bring yourself down from the cross? You saved others. Go ahead. Get down. He must be too weak. God says he's not weak, but this is the power of God for salvation. And so that Jesus in his strength and in his courage would not come down until he could utter those words, it is finished. And that in him, God was bringing about the fullness of his plan to save wicked and sinful people like me and like you so that we could receive the blessings of God. Jesus had to go to the cross for us. Jesus had to be abhorred for us. He did nothing himself to deserve that. Absolutely nothing. He was obedient to the Father. He was the embodiment of God's goodness and righteousness. And yet he ends up on a tree, accursed and forsaken of God. Why? So that he could raise us up with him. That we might be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, though we deserve nothing but God's righteous wrath. There are some of you here today who you've heard this picture of this humble, concealed servant. You've heard this gracious call to salvation that if you will simply trust in Jesus, that you will believe that Jesus has taken your place, that it was your sin that deserved the punishment and not his, you hear that and you just think, I don't know. Some of you may still be fighting that call. And I want to simply say two things to you. One, don't fight the call. It's a really gracious call. Like, who doesn't want their shalom, their well-being, their goodness and receiving God's blessing to be like this replenished stream, never running dry? And then the second thing I would simply say to you is that it's absolutely futile to kick against this servant because the one whose glory was concealed throughout most of his earthly sojourn, the one whose glory is even now concealed to many who don't have the eyes of faith to see, there is a day coming when he will return and when this concealed glory will be a revealed glory. And this is why we read, listen again to the book of Revelation chapter one, verse 12 and following. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash royalty. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Has anybody ever been at a giant waterfall? What do you hear in that water? Absolute power. Crushing power. You know you don't want to be under that. And it reverberates out. You don't just hear it. You feel it, don't you? That kind of power, that's what his voice is like. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth, here it is, came a sharp two-edged sword 
and his face was like the sun, shining with its strength. This one who has the sharp, two-edged sword who comes out of his mouth, this one who is accomplishing God's purpose, who the glory of God had been formerly concealed in and now even to some measure is concealed in, this one is coming back one day and his glory will fully be revealed. And John says this, verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And if you are kicking still to this day against the gracious offer of salvation in Jesus, I would simply say, well, that's not wise for you. You're not going to have all these blessings you want. And it's absolutely futile. Because the Apostle Paul says that there is a day when he comes back when every knee will bow before this king and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so would you today receive that gracious call of Jesus? And if you sit here today and you're a Christian, would you simply marvel at the grace of God and behold the unique glory of this servant? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant. We thank you for him who has rescued the Abrahamic covenant who has rectified that problem of our sin and yet your gracious promise and Lord who has restored and repeated to us this promise of salvation to all who would call upon him. Help us to have eyes to see this servant more clearly we pray in Jesus name. Amen.